I once attended a church where one of the leaders, a guy named John, had a very fiery temper. And I was told that when he would sit in meetings with other leaders, he was the kind of guy that would raise his voice and yell, and he'd pound the table, you know, insisting on getting his way in all things. On, on two occasions, I watched him get into a really loud, heated argument with church members in the lobby right after the service. And it was very distressing, it was very unsettling. His anger was, was not well received by the church. Well, I gently approached one of the other leaders and said, you know, what, what, what's going on here? <laughs> and here's what he said to me. He said, you know, John's one of those guys that just has an anger problem. And he's always been that way, and he always will be. What we need to learn to do is just show him grace. I have to say that didn't sound quite right to me. And I was a very new and very young believer at that time. And I thought, you know, as I'm reading this Bible that I've been given, I'm starting to learn about God's truth that says in the Bible that leaders are supposed to be self-controlled and sober-minded and not quarrelsome, and John was none of those things. And so it took me a long time to get it all sorted out, but ultimately I realized that that church was confused because they weren't extending grace, they were practicing tolerance. And those two things may look similar, but they're not the same. And grace is vastly preferable to tolerance. And Jesus makes this abundantly clear as he writes to the church in ancient Thyatira. And through this letter of love that we're about to read, Jesus helps us grasp the vital difference between tolerance and grace. As usual, though, Jesus doesn't begin by tackling the problem. He starts by commending the church for an area in which they excel. And you know what this church is doing really well? They're growing they are a growing church. So let's look at the book of Revelations, chapter 2, starting in verse 18. These are the words of Jesus, and he says to the Apostle John, who is serving as his divine secretary, recording these words, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Now as we've seen in each one of these letters that Jesus dictates to the churches, he wants to get their attention and he starts off by each church being given a very vivid, distinct image that describes Jesus and it's different for every church. And in this case, Jesus describes himself, he portrays himself as the Son of God whose eyes blaze with fire. In other words, his gaze burns. His gaze penetrates. Jesus sees more of us than just what's evident on the outside. 
He's the Son of God whose blazing look can see into our minds and our hearts and our souls. So we can't bluster or hide or pretend with the Son of God because He not only sees what we do, He sees who we are. Jesus wants the Christians in Thyatira to know that He sees them in their entirety. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And guess what? Jesus also sees us. Now in addition, we know that we as human beings often are unstable and erratic and inconsistent, but Jesus reveals himself as unshakable and immovable because he's supported by these sturdy bronze-like feet. Jesus wants us to know that he is solid and he's reliable. And we know that we can't always fully trust ourselves or others, but we can fully trust Jesus. And so this is the Jesus who's writing to the believers in Thyatira. And at the outset, before we get into the heart of the message, we need to understand how similar those people were to us because their city was a lot like modern-day America. You see, Thyatira was a place where commerce was king. Life centered on buying and selling. And as we'll see in a bit, they, like many ancient cultures, were pagan idol worshipers. And yet, at a very fundamental level, consumerism and materialism were their primary idols just as they are in our culture. And we as believers need to be astute because the reality is this, that our culture promotes the worship of money and possessions, as we've talked about before. Those are tools, but we cannot worship them. And if you think that it's too harsh to describe our culture as a culture of overt consumerism, as a culture that promotes the worship of money and things, consider this. How many Americans go shopping on Black Friday versus how many Americans worship Jesus on Good Friday? Even among Christians, the shoppers vastly outnumber the worshipers, which says a lot about our priorities. And Jesus sees this in us. And it's so important to understand the impact of consumerism and business because it shapes more than the marketplace, it shapes culture. And in Thyatira, the tentacles of commerce are wrapped around many other aspects of life. This city has numerous professional associations called guilds. And guilds were the forerunners of modern day trade unions. And Thyatira has guilds for potters and guilds for weavers and guilds for bronze makers and bakers. There's guilds for just about every profession. Now guilds can have a lot of value. There's strength in like-minded people who share certain skills uh, coming together to advocate for their profession. Nothing wrong with that. It's also a chance through the guild to talk with colleagues and to, to talk shop with people who share your interests and passions and abilities. And that's all good. But there's a downside. In Thyatira, guild membership isn't optional. If you have a trade and you want access to the marketplace, you must 
join a guild. And that results in all kinds of economic and peer pressure, particularly because, and it's because it makes things really sticky for believers, the guild is more than just a business group. It's also a social group. Guilds get together for business-related meetings, but they also host parties, and they have festivals, and their festivals are usually held in pagan temples and include pagan rituals. So Christians in the Thyatira church, most of whom belong to a guild, they face a huge challenge. How do we stay faithful to Jesus and still practice our trade and earn a living? That's the tension in the community and in the church. And this is the reality for these believers who Jesus is watching with his eyes of blazing fire. And here's what's so awesome. As he looks at this church, he sees that they are men and women of faith. And he commends them because they love God and they love each other. They are serving each other. They are serving the community around them. They are full of patience and endurance. And they're not stagnant or stuck in a religious rut because Jesus commends them for doing more now than they used to do. In other words, they are growing spiritually and they're expressing that growth by the way they live. And in fact, when Jesus says, your latter works exceed your first, Many Bible scholars believe that refers not just to their own personal growth, but also to the church's outreach to people who are spiritually adrift. In other words, Christians in the Thyatira church are sharing their faith and getting outsiders connected to Jesus. They're helping people become members of God's family. So these are not believers who are just going to church. This is an active spiritual community. They help each other live by faith and they serve one another and they find ways to express the love of Jesus to their neighbors. So they are growing spiritually and the church is growing numerically. Oh, there is much to commend here and Jesus is pleased. And yet, there can be good stuff happening and bad stuff happening at the same time. And this church, unfortunately, is at risk because in reaction to the culture and because of pressure from the culture, some of them are practicing tolerance when they should be practicing grace. And as we're about to see, tolerance rarely is helpful. While grace... God's grace always is an invitation to change. Let's continue on. But I have this against you, that you tolerate, there's that word, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. 
Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So after commending them, For an area where they're really excelling, Jesus critiques them because they tolerate the message of a false female prophet. Now, we need to be very clear up front about the proper and improper uses of tolerance. We all have habits and preferences and idiosyncrasies that other people can find annoying. And we encounter that regularly in all of our human relationships. Roommates and spouses deal with that kind of stuff all the time. Isn't it amazing that two adult people can have an intense argument over something like how to load the dishwasher properly? (laughs) Or whether to use bar soap or liquid soap in the bathroom? There's a lot of areas of life where we create friction with one another. And in those kinds of areas, a little tolerance can go a long way. To get along, we need to be tolerant people. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about issues where behavior actually is harmful. Which way you put the roll of toilet paper on the spindle isn't harmful. (laughs) And I've heard of couples having knocked down, drag out arguments over that. But see, we're talking here about when someone's engaged in a behavior that's harmful to themselves, harmful to others. And in those kinds of situations, tolerance is unloving and even can be dangerous. And so the issue with this woman Jezebel isn't, oh, she's too loud or she's too flamboyant. The issue is is that she is doing and promoting evil. That's the issue. And Jesus makes that clear by referring to this woman as Jezebel, but it's a symbolic name, not a literal one. It's like today, if someone really evil appears on the world stage and we call him Hitler, that that name gets thrown aloud a lot. Oh, that person, they're Hitler. Well, we, we don't mean that literally. We mean they're like Hitler. We're using that name to make a vivid moral comparison. And that's what, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's linking this prophetess in Thyatira with the actual Jezebel of the Old Testament whose story is recorded in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. And that Jezebel was very evil and very crafty because she wanted to subvert the people of God and she did it in a very covert way. So if you want to subvert God's people, you don't, you don't try and lead them away from God. You just try to graft other corrupt stuff onto God. And that's what the original Jezebel did. You don't need to turn away from the God of Israel. You just need to worship all these other gods too. Just add some, add some other stuff. And this Jezebel equivalent in Thyatira is doing the same thing. She's not telling people to turn away from Jesus. She's just trying to stir paganism in and mix it into Christianity. And by claiming to be a prophetess, 
she's saying, God spoke to me and told me to tell you this. That's evil. It's destructive. It's harmful to her. It's harmful to the church. By the way, a little side note. Some people have used this passage to claim that women cannot be prophets. But that's clearly incorrect because in the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul tells us that there were female prophets in the early church. And so the issue here in Thyatira is not the sex of the prophet, but the message of the prophet. And the message of anyone who claims to be a prophet, male or female, must be tested against the truth of God's word. And her message is false. It's deadly false. And yet it's so very appealing to guild members who must regularly deal with the temptations of paganism. And her message, which is to tolerate paganism, is an easy way out of what is a very uncomfortable social and business situation. And so, so to try to understand the impact, let's take a moment, and I want you to picture yourself as a guild member in Thyatira. It's time for the guild to meet. And you go to the meeting, in this particular meeting, it's a business meeting, but it involves dinner at a pagan temple. And some of the food they serve during the meal is food that's also sacrificed to idols in a ceremony of false worship, which means if you eat it, you're complicit in that false worship. And then after dinner, the guild members head off to go visit the temple prostitutes. And they all do it because you're part of the group. And that's how you maintain good business contacts. It's how you earn a living. What should you do as a follower of Jesus? Where do you draw the lines? How do you discern proper boundaries? It's very awkward. It's very uncomfortable. It's a dilemma. And then Jezebel shows up and says, don't worry about it. Just do it. God says it's okay. What a relief. I don't have to do anything uncomfortable. I can just be like everybody else. And many believers are lured in by that message of tolerance, and so they tolerate the lies of Jezebel. And they do it because tolerance makes no demands. Tolerance settles for things as they are. Tolerance has no other goal other than to keep the peace. Tolerance is stagnant because when we practice tolerance, no one is challenged to grow or change. However, when Jesus looks at a church through his eyes that blaze like fire, what he wants to see is not tolerance, but grace. Now, we don't obviously find the word grace in this particular passage, but what we see is grace in action because Jesus is the God of love and grace. And so when Jesus says, as recorded in verse 21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, that's grace. And because grace is corrective and strives to promote healthy change, grace contains three elements. First, grace requires sin to be addressed by speaking the truth in love so people understand that their behavior falls short of what God expects. 
if we love people, we cannot let them settle for less than God's best. So when we see someone engaging in sinful behavior that's destructive, we need to prayerfully discern how and when do we lovingly confront them. Remember my story about John, the church leader with an anger problem? No one in that church would confront his sin. They were unwilling to take the first step of grace and lovingly say, John, your out-of-control anger is destructive to you and to our church. Dear brother, it needs to stop. So grace requires that sin be addressed. That's first. And second, grace is not judgmental. When we're judgmental, we talk down to people and we demand change. And when we are graceful, full of grace, we share hard truths in love and we give people time to consider their actions. And we do that because it allows people room to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. And then if they choose to change, it will be because of the nudge of God's Spirit, not our demand. Grace is not judgmental. And third, grace always has a specific goal, repentance. Repentance leads to change which results in a more godly character. Repentance leads to change which results in a more fulfilling life as we leave junk behind. When we repent, we get in step with God and we then are able to receive the best that He has for us. God's grace beats tolerance every time because grace never is stagnant. Grace does not settle for the status quo. And so while the church at Thyatira treats Jezebel with tolerance, Jesus treats her with grace. And so somehow, someway, he says that he confronts her with her sexual immorality. And my guess is that the Holy Spirit prompts someone in that church to move beyond tolerance to grace, and that person talks with Jezebel about her sinful, destructive behavior. And I find myself wondering, how uncomfortable would that kind of conversation have been? If you ever had to, 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 to confront somebody, it's no fun. And you know, we sometimes have this warm and fuzzy view of grace, but grace sometimes puts us in uncomfortable situations. If we have to have a hard conversation, it's uncomfortable as we try to extend grace to that person who's in sin and we're critiquing them, hopefully in love and not judgmentally, but it's awkward and uncomfortable. And for how about for the person on the receiving end? as they lovingly hear our critique and who's invited to embrace grace and to repent and make some changes. It's uncomfortable. That's why we avoid it. But love compels us to do it. And the Apostle Paul gives us in the book of Galatians chapter 6 some advice about how to have those kinds of conversations. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Oh, key word. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. 
And then this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So if we learn from this situation that Jesus has with Jezebel and we apply Paul's advice here about how to handle a confrontation, then we understand that if we have to confront someone in love, we do it lovingly, we do it with gentleness, and we do it with humility because we're all subject to temptation. And we need to do it with gentleness and humility because it might be that a few months or a few years down the line, that person might need to confront me about a shortcoming in my life. We all stumble at times. We all fall short at times. And in the healthy give and take of life together in God's family, there's times when I might need to gently confront you and you might need to gently confront me. We do that with and for each other. And here's the other piece. We don't confront people talking down to them. We don't wag our finger and then walk away. No, no, no. Paul says we walk with them. We bear their burdens. We stand with them as they go through the process of repentance and restoration and renewal. And that's true for everyone. And it's true for this woman Jezebel. She's doing evil, but she's confronted with the truth and urged to repent. And then even Jesus, in his perfection, gives her time to repent. He gives her time to consider her actions. And I find this fascinating because we don't know how long he waits. We're not given a timetable. And there's no rules about how much time someone should be given to embrace God's truth. And that's one of the reasons that grace is uncomfortable. Tolerance is so much easier because we just don't confront anybody. We all just keep doing what we do. And judgmentalism is easier because we show up and say, you're messing up, change. (laughs) Grace is harder because we confront gently and in love and we pray with and for people and we give them time to respond to the Holy Spirit and we walk beside them help bear their burdens. And not everyone responds on the same schedule. If someone is struggling with anger or they're battling an addiction or they're full of pride, whatever their issue is, we can't force them into a regimented response. I mean, can you imagine what that would look like? Oh, you have uncontrollable anger, let me check the list. Anger, hmm, you get three weeks. (laughs) Doesn't work like that. In a prior church, I oversaw a recovery ministry for several years and saw people dealing with all kinds of addictions and compulsions and even people with the similar issues. The process of repentance and restoration and renewal was often very different in its timing. And so we have to get to know people and understand them and find a way to speak the truth in love to them and then we give them the grace of time. Now only Jesus knows how much time a person needs, so we have to rely on him. We gotta pray for discernment so we can practice grace in our relationships like he does here with this woman Jezebel. So she's given time because Jesus does love her and he wants her to make the right choice. 
And it's tragic because we learn from the passage that she's unwilling to change. And that sometimes happens. Some people refuse to repent because they're prideful or they're stubborn or they're self-righteous. And that's not the way to godliness. And so when time runs out, whenever that is, there are and will be consequences. For Jezebel, as we read these words from Jesus, these consequences for her are going to be significant because of the huge damage she's doing to herself and the church. God ultimately does carry out his justice. Now, in this case, I believe the consequences for Jezebel are largely spiritual rather than physical. When he talks about people committing adultery with Jezebel, there might be people that are doing that physically, but I think what Jesus is more concerned about is people who are spiritually unfaithful to God by embracing the lies of her teaching. And I don't think the children of Jezebel here are her literal children. I think they're her followers. They're people who bought into her lies, and they too are going to experience God's justice because they've joined her in promoting false gods, engaging in casual sex, and sacrificing godly principles to earn a living, and none of that's good for them, and none of it's good for others. And if it continues, the church will be damaged, which is why Jesus says, I'm going to address it. And yet, even as he lays out harsh consequences, he always offers grace. We can see that in verse 22. All these consequences he talks about can be avoided if people repent. That option always is available. Our God loves to give people the opportunity to change their minds because he wants to forgive people and help them experience the best in life. Because of grace of grace no matter how far someone has fallen they can repent and that's why grace is so much better than tolerance because tolerance leads to stagnation where no one is ever challenged no one's ever made to feel uncomfortable and no one ever grows and then we miss out on the best that God has for us Now, thankfully, there are some people in Thyatira who understand this. And they're not practicing tolerance. They're not following Jezebel. And so in the very last part of the letter, Jesus directs his comments to those people and urges them to keep pressing on, to listen carefully to what the Holy Spirit is telling them, and to stand firm in their faith. Let's look at the final comments from Jesus. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, which means they're not being tolerant, (laughs) who've not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's a faithful core in Thyatira who are standing firm against the lies of Jezebel. They're resisting cultural pressure 
but they're not isolating themselves from the culture because Jesus started out by commending the church for growing. He said there's spiritual growth happening in this church. There's outreach happening. There's evangelism. People are coming in. Where's that coming from? I think it's coming from this faithful core. And if they were standing firm by isolating themselves from the culture, well, they'd be protected, but the church wouldn't be growing. So I think it's a logical inference that this faithful core figures out how and where to draw appropriate lines as they do business in the midst of an unbelieving world. And I find myself wondering, what, what would that look like? What would a Christian in Thyatira do? What strategies and tactics would they adopt to stand firm and hold fast to Jesus and then not isolate themselves from the culture and eliminate their ability to make a living. So maybe, maybe they would do something like this. When their guild holds a meeting, they know it's going to be built around a pagan meal. And so that night, they fast. They go to the meeting, they show up at the dinner, and when the food's passed, they say, no thanks, I'm not hungry tonight. They might even say, I'm fasting, because fasting was done in those ancient cultures. They just skip the food and participate in the meeting. And when the business meeting's over and the meal's over and everybody heads off to the temple prostitutes, they get up and they politely say goodnight, say, hey, thanks for a great business meeting, I need to leave. They just go home. And yes, people might make some comments, there might be some jokes at their expense, but it's a way to stay engaged with the culture and to stay true to Jesus. Whatever it's like, this core knows how to draw good boundaries. And as a result, they're able to love Jesus and love their neighbors and lead some of their neighbors to Jesus. And so Jesus commends them and he says, keep at it, stand strong, hold firm. And then he concludes the letter with two promises. First, when God's kingdom fully arrives in the future, faithful followers of Jesus are going to live with him and reign with him forever. And based on what we just read, in some unique way, victorious believers are going to have authority along with Jesus to carry out God's justice. And I don't pretend to fully understand that. But it's a significant honor. And it's a reminder that faithfulness to Jesus in this life pays dividends in the next. The second promise is that Jesus will give us the morning star. Now that's really cool because that's Jesus referring to himself. In scripture, Jesus is described as the bright and morning star which means in the next life we're going to be incredibly close to Jesus because he will give us himself. And you know, I've often thought about how amazing it would have been to be one of the original disciples, to get to spend three years on the road with Jesus, you know, talks around the campfire, conversation over meals, all the interaction as you're walking the dusty roads. It would have been so cool to have that intimate time with Christ. Well, guess what? in the fullness of the kingdom of God, I won't have to wonder what it's like to be intimate with Jesus like that, and neither will you, because that's what our life will be like every day. And that's because Jesus will give us the morning star. Oh, what a rich promise. 
to spend eternity in consistent, ongoing, intimate relationship with my Lord and my Savior, to know Him as a friend, to do life with Him. Oh, that is a promise worth holding on to. And that's a promise worth living for. And because of that promise, then I want to embrace what Jesus says to the Thyatirans. I want to stand firm in my faith. I want to hold fast to what I have, to what I've been given by God. And as an expression of my faith in Jesus, I want to continually discern how to practice grace rather than tolerance. Because grace is what makes a difference in my life. And grace is what makes a difference in our life together. If I live by grace and not tolerance, I can help our church be stronger. If I live by grace and not tolerance, I can represent Jesus wisely and well in the midst of this unbelieving world. And that's the heart of this particular letter to the church. Jesus sees us, and he wants to see us growing, and he wants to see us practicing grace, and he wants to see us standing firm, and he believes that, yes, we all can do this, even as we live and conduct business in the midst of an unbelieving world. Now, as you and I interact with people outside the church, we're often going to face challenges like the ones faced by the Christians in Thyatira. And very often these challenges and temptations that we have to deal with arise in the course of our work. Because it's in the workplace where we spend so much of our time and where we interact with such a wide diversity of people. And I do know what that's like because of the years that I worked in the marketplace before I went into the ministry. And I often faced situations where I was tempted and I had to discern how and where to draw the lines. I'll never forget the night that uh, I was invited to go out to a business dinner with some colleagues. So after work, we left the office, we went out to the parking lot, we hopped in Mitch's car, there were four of us, we drove in Mitch's car off to the restaurant, had a nice meal, talk shop, did all that. Meal ended, we drove back to the parking lot, we sat in the car because we were chatting and just hanging out, and then Mitch reaches over, reaches into the console, and pulls out a hash pipe and lights it up. I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> I hadn't expected that. And he starts passing it around. So there's the moment. What do you do? The first thought that went through my brain, I don't do that, I'm a Christian. How would that have been received? As judgmentalism. Wouldn't have helped my relationship with those guys. I just said, no thanks, passed it on. Nobody said a word. Now I didn't really want to keep smelling that stuff. <laughs> so I let the conversation continue and I worked it to a close so we could lightly, you know, in the evening and then we got out of the car and went on our way. And I spent a lot of time praying about, okay, what do I do with that? Here's a friend and a colleague. Some of these guys are doing things that I know is harmful to them. And I care about them as human beings made in the image of God. If I respond with judgmentalism, I'll never, ever get close to them. If I just tolerate it, they'll never change. 
how do I respond with some grace? And I realized they had to earn the right to speak into their lives. And so I stayed in relationship with them, continued to socialize with them, periodically having to draw those kind of boundaries. And one of the guys in the group, a guy named Bob, I got very, very close to. And we started doing a lot of one-on-one socializing. And he started opening up about his own life. And as he did that, as he trusted me with personal things, there was a point then when I could begin to speak into his life and say, Bob, let me tell you some things about Jesus. Let me tell you some things about the God who I'm striving to follow. And I was able to help Bob see that there were parts of his life that were falling short of God's best. We had some powerful talks about Jesus. I got him to come to church a few times. Bob was getting so close to Jesus. When my company transferred me, he went off to another company. This was pre-internet, Facebook, social media age. (laughs) We lost contact. I do not know how that story ends. I don't know what happened to Bob. But I do know this, that God showed me in that relationship how to not be judgmental, how to not be tolerant, but to practice some grace and to become very good friends with a man who is very far from God and lead him much, much closer to Jesus Christ. And when God brings Bob to mind, I pray for him. I pray for his soul. And I pray that somewhere along the line, he said yes to Jesus. Bob's not the only one. There was a young woman on my staff named Renee who was truly spiritually adrift. Delightful, pleasant, spiritually confused young lady. And her story's too long to tell. But God used me to plant some seeds in her life because I built trust with her and I could share about Jesus. She ended up leaving the company going off Three years later, I got a letter in the mail. And she said, I just want you to know, you helped me take step one on my pathway to Jesus Christ. And today I'm following him. I never heard the rest of her story, but God used me to plant those seeds by being graceful. Speaking truth, giving her time, letting the Holy Spirit do his work. I had another friend in the business world, and um, he was, um, well, it's probably fair to say he was being caught up in the spirit of Jezebel. Fred was a follower of Jesus, but as he was working his way up in the corporate ladder, he got all caught up into money and position and power. Going along to get along, anything to make that next promotion. And we became really good friends. And God used me to graciously speak truth into his life and help him get re-centered so that what he valued more than material success and career success was following Jesus and being his hands and feet in the marketplace. It comes through grace. It was really cool because I got Frank re-centered. He raised his kids in the church. I had the privilege of baptizing a couple of his kids. That was really, really exciting. And those things happened because I didn't isolate myself. I just invested lots of time in building relationships. Relationships, yes, that puts me into many uncomfortable situations. Situations where I had to discern sometimes on the fly, God, how and where in this moment do I draw the line? And I'll be the first to admit I didn't always get it right. 
but I trusted that God would show me how to stay engaged so that I could love people who were far from God and draw them toward Jesus. And so the path I was walking was to stand firm in Christ without yielding to the culture and practicing not tolerance, not judgmentalism, but grace. Grace is what gets us there inside and outside the church. And, and what I've shared today, I'm convinced it holds true not just for the business world of Thyatira or the Willamette Valley. It holds true for every arena of, life, of our lives in which we intersect with other people. And maybe for you it's the classroom. Maybe it's your retirement community or your neighborhood. In addition to those places outside the church, it's certainly true for us here in the church. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, Jesus sees us and he wants to see us follow his example and learn to practice grace. Grace that promotes change and transformation. Grace that helps all of us stay firmly connected to Christ. Grace that strengthens our life together as his church. Grace that helps us share God's truth with unbelievers and hopefully lead them into the embrace of the Savior. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, we've been given the message. We know what the Spirit is saying. Are we listening? And will we live it out? Let's pray daily toward that end so that individually and as a church we always will be agents of the grace of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so very grateful that we've received your grace because your grace has given each of us an opportunity to repent and experience your forgiveness. Please help us to avoid the trap of tolerance simply out of a desire to be comfortable. Please help us avoid the trap of judgmentalism which is so prideful and destructive. Instead, please show us how we can extend your grace to one another so that we grow and change. And please show us how to extend grace to the spiritually drift people all around us so they can get to know Jesus and experience grace at the foot of the cross just as we have. And we pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.